You're listening to a Tudor in Stuart Ireland Interdisciplinary Conference podcast. The 10th annual Tudor in Stuart Ireland Interdisciplinary Conference took place at the Royal Irish Academy on the 19th and 20th of August 2022. The conference was generously supported by the Royal Irish Academy and Marsh's Library. As in previous years, the conference was recorded for podcasting by Real Smart Media in association with History Hub. You can access the archive of Tudor and Stuart Ireland Conference podcasts on History Hub's website, historyhub.ie, as well as on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud and Spotify. In this episode, a recording of a paper by Charlie Tavener from Trinity College Dublin, entitled Dining at Dublin Castle, Food and Power in a 16th Century Lord Deputy's Household Accounts. The 27th of April was a pretty typical Tuesday at Dublin Castle in 1574 under the Lord Deputyship of um, Sir William Fitzwilliam. His Lordship was at home and he took his dinner and supper at a long board supported by trestles beside his family and guests, probably in the dining chamber in his recently refurbished lodgings. The household officers dined at their own tables and the lesser staff ate elsewhere. More than 50 mouths were fed twice that day, wolfing down between them a whole carcass of salt beef, another one bought fresh, um, and another one uh, bought fresh. Um, more than seven sheep, 93 rolls of white bread, the same number of large coarser loaves, and 540 pints of beer. Likely reserved for the higher-ranking diners were delicate foods like lamb, rabbit, hen, and small birds, um, and stints, which is a delicate little wader. At the seat of the country's most powerful English office holder and the Crown's representative in Ireland, this food consumption seemed to convey the impression of plenty, wealth and might. But if we dig a little bit deeper, it also reveals a more complicated story about early modern Ireland's political and economic history. We know what Fitzwilliam and his retinue ate because of these astonishing documents. This is a page from the Lord Deputy's household accounts for just that April Tuesday. It's held along with other records from Fitzwilliam's time in Ireland at Northamptonshire Record Office. The most detailed books dating from 1574 and 1575 itemise purchases and consumption on a daily basis. Their form is very consistent. So you can see on this page the date runs across the top. Um, The foodstuffs are listed down the side, probably a bit small for you to see on the screen. They're split into foods from the household store in that top bracket, the middle brackets for purchases, and there aren't any on this page, but just below that there's usually any gifts. The three columns um, that you can see the the numerals in, uh, they record the volumes and any prices of items received, spent and remaining. At the bottom of the page, um, you can see a little bit of um, prose writing. It's the arrangement of tables at dinner and supper, the number of messes served, the number of table settings, and the details of any guests. Other account books and rolls cover other years, months, months and weeks for different periods in Fitzwilliam's first term in office between 1572 and 1575, and his second between 1588 and 1594. These sources are are known to historians of Ireland um, and occasionally have been dipped into by scholars, but they've not previously been subjected to extensive or systematic analysis. They contain depths of information far beyond food on topics as different as prices, um, food, uh, wages, um, high politics and the exploitation of natural resources. And the Fitzwilliam records are one of the key bodies of evidence for the food cult project, um, which um, Owen mentioned, um, of which I'm part. 
um, headed by Susan Flavin, exploring the food history of Ireland using historical methods, archaeology, um, new forms of archaeological science, and uh, practical approaches um, like brewing beer. We've transcribed all the surviving Fitzwilliam accounts, creating a vast data set of food consumption suitable for quantitative and qualitative analysis. We're going to be making the data set available for historians and students, um, and you'll soon be able to find it um, kind of a version, an accessible version of it as a kind of, uh, kind of widget as part of uh, this online exhibition, which will be up in the next couple of weeks, we hope, Dining at Dublin Castle, which is on the project website. Um, and the, uh, the data set will also be kind of deposited towards the end of the project as well, so people have access to, to all the stuff within it. Um, the research um, has also produced an article that's um, forthcoming, that will maybe even next week, in Historical Journal, um, some aspects of which I'm going to be talking about today. Um, I'm going to kind of run through various things um, that come up through that. Written records of elite household management um, took very different forms. They originated around the 12th century and became more elaborate in the later medieval period as aristocrats settled in residences and followed more regular domestic routines. However, by the early modern era, the practice was starting to decline as the nobility lost some of their power with the flourishing of, of centralised courts. This means Fitzwilliam's records stand out. Not only are they the richest and most accessible examples of their kind in Ireland, um, the documents of Fitzwilliam's predecessor, Henry Sidney, and I guess his successor, are calendared. Um, we know about them, and some of them are very good, but access to the originals is difficult for the kind of taking, basically, to be able to take photographs of them and to analyse them at depth in this way. Um, there are some more barriers to doing that. Um, but the Fitzwilliam records are also some of the most detailed in Europe um, for this time, or certainly in this part of Europe. This was an immense household catering operation, perhaps one of the largest in the lands under the English crown outside of the royal court. Under Fitzwilliam, Dublin Castle had over 100 men and women on the payroll, in addition to the lord, his family, and other noble hangers-on. These documents weren't just cold, objective financial instruments. Information that was in them was gradually refined. So they, it would start from scrappy kind of day books, even slips of paper, and gradually work upwards into summary ledgers. The accounts as they went through this process were usually audited by a clerk, um, the steward of the house, or even the lord himself, and we do have Fitzwilliam's signature on many of them. As Adam Smythe has argued, household records are textual constructions, a form of life writing even, which required making choices about what to include, how to organise information, and how to express it. As a genre, financial accounts, if they were well kept, conveyed a sense of honesty and a sense of thoroughness. This idea of household records as communication is reinforced when we focus on the quality of Fitzwilliam's records. The hand that made them is exceptionally neat and in places embellished with flourishes like you can see in this initial here. More than just working documents, they were produced for a real or even imagined readership. It wasn't Fitzwilliam himself who was creating these books and roles in the first place, but they were produced by officers who worked in his name and were approved by his signature. In the rest of the paper, I want to consider some of the messages then that the Lord Deputy was conveying through his accounts. And I'm going to do that by focusing on particular groups of foods, asking what they might tell us about the country's food culture and its connection to continental trends. And then I'm going to zoom out and look at some of the bigger pictures of the, uh, the castle's consumption and how it might connect to, to parts of Ireland's broader political and economic history. OK, into some food. 
The accounts make very clear that Fitzwilliam was living up to his status as a member of the English social elite. For example, most days there was copious poultry and wildfowl available. There was not just the usual chickens, hens and capons, but an extraordinary range. Across Europe, because wildfowl were expensive and sometimes could only be hunted legally by elites, they were tended to be restricted um, to high-status diners. Symbolically speaking, in the medieval model of the great chain of being, birds were associated with the more noble element of air. If you compare similar accounts from English households, places like um, uh, Theobald's under, and, under Cecil, um, around exactly the same time, species like curlews and, and herons and wild geese, things you can see up there, um, do appear from time to time. But the Dublin Castle kitchens stand out for serving an impressive selection throughout the calendar year. Travellers to the country were struck and commented on uh, the abundant wildlife of 16th century Ireland, the waterfowl above all. And those best placed to access and enjoy the fruits of this plenty were wealthy and powerful diners like Fitzwilliam. For all members of the household, meat was a staple. By using el- um, estimates of the edible weight of different animal carcasses, we can judge the weight um, or estimate it at least, um, of what was being consumed. In 1574, cattle provide a surprisingly high proportion, well over half, with sheep representing another third. This is interesting because in England, mutton has been thought of as the most commonly consumed meat around this time, until beef jumped into first place um, in the 17th century. In Ireland, then, these records suggest this tendency may have been entrenched at an earlier stage. And this finding may matter for, for a couple of major reasons. Firstly, it shows that plenty of cattle were being kept specifically for slaughter in Ireland. Um, Contrary to previous assumptions, meat could be a central component of Irish diets, a fact that we know is, uh, we're learning through our project, is backed up by other evidence, um, like the zooarchaeology and other remaining um, financial records. The the other second reason um, for this importance of the finding um, is that Dublin Castle was a largely English residence, and this was a period in which the English became associated with heavy beef consumption, building up you know, mythology of the, British as, as the English and the British as beef eaters. Um, the idea of them as kind of carnivores who reared large, sturdy cattle. This stereotype developed despite the limited actual improvements in livestock productivity and mutton's relative dominance in the 16th century. So while living in Ireland, English occupiers may have been able to consume more beef than they were able to back home, manifesting an emerging feature of their national identity. Other foods can help us think about the household's rhythms. There was a host of seafood passing through the kitchens, fresh fish like haddock, ray, salmon and trout, uh, shellfish like oysters and lobster, as well as preserved cod, ling and herring. And these foods became particularly prominent on fast days. So throughout the year, uh, Friday and Saturday every week were assigned for abstinence, along with Lent and other observances like the eaves of major feasts. So together, this covered around a third of the year. That's what's highlighted in orange on, on the calendar from 1574 that you can see. At these times, beef, the staple meat, disappeared from the menus. The fine foods destined for top diners, however, like poultry and wildfowl, were largely unaffected, which meant that the bulk of the household was likely getting by on unappetising salted fish. In this period, there was relatively little difference between, um, I'm talking about the 1570s here, uh, mid-16th century, little difference between Protestant and Catholic fasting in practice. 
Um, but since the Reformation, the meanings of those fasts um, had begun to shift. So in Protestant communities, fasting was no longer seen as a, a good work, but merely a sensible spiritual practice. Meanwhile, the English state stressed the more secular benefits of, of fasting, justifying in 1563 the addition of an extra fast day every Wednesday, um, with the claim that it supported the fishing industry and the navy. This unpopular extra fast day was, was very quickly dropped, officially in the 1580s, but actually what we're seeing in Fitzwilliam's accounts, they're only fasting on Fridays and Saturdays, that in practice it may have been dropped a bit earlier. People didn't want to um, be doing that all the time. But despite this, the, the strict adherence to the broader practice of fasting suggests this, fast, this castle was being presented as a source of Protestant orthodoxy and virtue. On a daily basis, um, bread was the foundation of the Dublin Castle diet. Um, we can use the amount consumed every day, shown on this chart here, or this kind of up and down, um, as the total poundage of uh, white bread and second quality bread in 1574. It's a very good proxy for the kind of ebb and flow of diners at the castle. So the low points that you can see um, on, the, on, the, uh, on the chart there indicate the periods in January, uh, March, um, and, and August, and also a bit of September, when Fitzwilliam was away um, out of the household on progresses or on military campaigns. The high points are either at Christmas and New Year, you can see the spikes there, or when guests were hosted. Um, talking of guests, the Earl of Essex was the most frequent visitor, stopping by in that year on 19 days. Um, and the, huge, the biggest spike that you can see there is on the 12th of June, um, when more than 350 pounds of bread were eaten, along with just under 2,000 pints of beer drunk, um, when two earls were entertained at uh, the Manor of Kilmainham. Hospitality was a core aspect of aristocratic culture, forging social ties and strengthening hierarchies of status. By hosting an impressive table and inviting distinguished guests, Fitzwilliam was demonstrating himself as a prime lord within Ireland. This was especially important because of the traditions of communal feasting uh, within um, Gaelic regions of the country. Dublin Castle was not a royal court, an unrivaled centre of high politics and culture, but Lord's deputy like Sidney, who'd made showy progresses around the country, you know, all the stuff we know about, encouraging literary propaganda, and, and more relevantly here, renovating Dublin Castle um, into a more, from a crumbling castle into a, into a more habitable dwelling. They attempted to, he attempted to live up to and extend the potential of his rights regal office. Previously, Fitzwilliam has had pretty low reputation among historians, but I think his household accounts suggest he was trying to maintain the grandeur befitting the Queen's representative. One aspect of the aristocratic culture of hospitality, extending this idea of, of feasting, was, was gifting, a, a practice that's um, well studied by anthropologists and historians and has been talked about a bit already at the conference. In this period, um, historians like Felicity Hill talked about how gifts and food gifts tended to be passed between social peers or upwards from lesser nobles, vassals or tenants upwards towards their superior lords. And this is the story we find in Fitzwilliam's records. Low points, high points. Um, in 1574, Fitzwilliam or his wife received 168 items of food as gifts. Um, around three quarters of these were poultry, um, wildfowl or, or game. And, and of course, as I talked about earlier, these were high status foods befitting the recipient's rank. Pigeons, interestingly, were given the most often. 
Usually the sender's identity is scribbled alongside the gift at the bottom of the page, like I showed earlier. And among the senders were English appointees, um, like the Master of Ordnance and the Queen's Attorney, um, and local leaders like the mayors of Dublin and Waterford. The most active gifters in, in 1574 were Sir Thomas Fitzwilliam and his wife, um, landowners in the, probably the landowners in the south of County Dublin. He doesn't, um, our Lord Deputy we're talking about here doesn't have um, relations with that name. So Sir Thomas and his wife sent 21 of those presents, a really large proportion. The gifts that he was giving of wildfowl, lobster and crab may have been quite an unsubtle attempt to curry favour or express gratitude. So just at the time he was sending these things, um, Sir Thomas was seeking the Queen's permission to rebuild Wicklow Castle, which would be held by him and his sons. And the Lord Deputy wrote several letters um, to politicians back at Westminster in support of the scheme. Another lordly ideal was keeping all these followers fed, so that huge stuff that I was talking about earlier. Every week in 1574, the bakehouse at the castle had to produce more than 1,000 loaves of bread. The brewers poured out, on average, 9.2 hogsheads, or about 497 gallons of beer. The kitchens processed five whole carcasses of beef and around 30 sheep, and that's before all the fish, poultry, game, eggs, milk, butter, and other drinks like wine. Each member of the household, if we uh, even take a high estimate um, for the number of hungry, hungry mouths um, eaten every day of about 100, each of those could have eaten 1.5 um, pounds of bread, 3 pounds of meat, and 5 pints of beer on a daily basis. So Fitzwilliam's account seemed to testify that there was more than enough food to go around at the castle, and once again that the Lord Deputy was fulfilling his duty. Maintaining this great volume and diversity of food was a great financial burden. In the household's full-year accounts for 1574, and you can see these totted up here into the major categories, um, food, which is indicated in yellow there, was the single largest category of spending, um, more than wages, liveries, horses and fuel combined. Fitzwilliam's overall spending was in line with holders of the same office before and after them. And interestingly, he was spending even more on food, even though his household spending dropped during his second term, which may be a reflection of the um, price inflation of the late 16th century. His provisioners were active buyers at local and regional fairs and markets. But for basics like beef, flour and malt, the Lord Deputy benefited from the system known as CESS. This allowed the Lord's provisioners to buy food from pale landowners at a cheaper fixed rate known as the Queen's Price. And this was a great encumbrance um, for those obliged to give up the produce um, for less than they could get at market. And the system was tainted with claims of corruption. However, Fitzwilliam was deeply reliant on this low-cost provisioning and the castle's high consumption was heavily subsidised, therefore. So in 1574, for example... Um, the Dublin Castle household received 231 beef cattle from Cess and another 56 from tithes that they'd, they'd taken in, which is equivalent to 95% of all those consumed and, and uh, killed and consumed that year. And he went beyond this too. Every single shilling was kind of squeezed out. So of all those kind of cattle carcasses, the tallow and the hides were sold off to bring in extra revenue which makes Fitzwilliam's continual complaints about the extortionate cost of running his household intriguing. Um, 
His service in Ireland began in the 1550s, and he served as vice treasurer and treasurer at war, um, deputised as, as Lord Justice as well, um, giving him a grasp of the Irish state's parlous finances. Before his appointment as Lord Deputy on 13th of January 1572, he'd pleaded not to be chosen, and he only reluctantly returned for his second term. And part of reading these household accounts as a form of autobiography, as I suggested earlier, means connecting them to other documents. Unfortunately, like you can see up on the screen, many of Fitzwilliam's own letters um, survive in the state papers. The toll of maintaining his residence was one of their most consistent themes. So just six months after entering office um, in July of 1572, he wrote to Lord Burley back in England saying that when I enter in consideration of my want every way to furnish and countenance this place as the honour doth require, I blushed, not for my own behalf, but for Her Majesty's honour, which I proffer before my own life. And yet I protest the furnishing of this place hath and will cost me £1,500 at the least. I have written to my wife to sell that small stock I have at Milton, and if that will not serve the turn, I will supply it with the sale of lands. Fitzwilliam claimed that keeping his household, which reflected on the Queen's personal honour, had forced him to sell stock and maybe soon lands back home in Northamptonshire, Milton's his, his house. The Lord Deputy received an allowance from the Crown, but he deemed this insufficient. Two years later, two years after this letter, on the same April day that I started this paper with, he wrote to the Privy Council at Westminster, again begging for extra funds. Otherwise, I know not how to feed myself or my people, Fitzwilliam wrote. Throughout his letters, Fitzwilliam invokes this difficulty of feeding both himself and those around him. He suggests that this reflects poorly on the Crown and the state because he was acting on their behalf. This context has, implication, has implications for how we should read the household accounts. At this moment, the English Crown's authority uh, in large parts of Ireland was, of course, still highly contested, and the state was financially straitened. In this environment, Fitzwilliam's attempt to impress um, English power abroad, using all the resources at his disposal, um, which included the way that he provided food and the choice of foodstuffs that filled his tables, was very striking. Keeping meticulous accounts testified to both the circumstances he and his chief officers faced, as well as their honesty in the management of resources. The messages conveyed by these sources are therefore multiple. So on the one level, the dining at Dublin Castle they described suggested English lordly power was on display within the country. On another level, the financial cost and the careful accounting um, highlighted the shaky foundations of the Lord Deputy's rule. Thanks for listening to this podcast from the Tudor and Stuart Ireland Interdisciplinary Conference. You can access the entire archive of Tudor and Stuart Ireland Conference podcasts on History Hub's website, historyhub.ie, as well as on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud and Spotify.